This is Love, Recovery, and Rock and Roll. I'm Chris. And I'm Amy. And you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.loverecoveryrr.com. Love, Recovery, Rock and Roll is a podcast all about recovery from substance abuse for those in recovery and their family, friends, and loved ones. So on today's episode, we have Dr. Joel Hansen. He is currently the Chief Medical Officer of, of Altium Health. Dr. Hansen has a wealth of knowledge to share, and we're so excited to have you here to share your ideas and cutting research on medical-assisted treatment, also known as MAT, as well as experiences in opening your own rehab and the difference between hospital detox as well as ambulatory detox, or as we lay people call it, office detox, and what that means. Office space. Detox. Office space detox. So welcome to the show, Dr. Hansen. Thank you for joining us. You have a background in internal medicine as well as psychiatry, and you're board certified in psychiatry and addiction medicine as well. And you came out to Utah for one of your final residencies, both to, that, that's specialized to have both internal medicine as well as psychiatry. How, how long does that take you to complete? Yeah, the residency... It- was five years five years the combination of the two yeah plus the three years of med school plus and the four the, years of med school oh the four years <laughs> i forget that right the four years of med school and, and the five the years of undergrad yeah <laughs> so it did take some time it adds up now beyond your background in medicine you were the founder of summit lodge a residential treatment center in central utah as well as you also founded and run a detox center as well Yes, those are two projects I'm really proud of. The, the residential program in central Utah, a nice big lodge. We had a lot of people come through. Some of them I still have some contact with, see their progress. The detox center was in St. George. It's still running. Somebody, I've, I sold it, so somebody else is running it now. A nice service for, the, for southern Utah. Oh, definitely. And, and a great need for that as well. Yes. Now, currently, you're the chief medical officer of Altium Health. That's right. Yeah. Altium, uh, we have a couple of different service products that we do. The office is uh, out in Jordan Landing in West Jordan. We do medically assisted addiction treatment, and which includes things like Suboxone and Vivitrol. We also have various levels of therapy that people can get involved in depending on their needs, uh, what they call partial hospitalization, day treatment, intensive outpatient, general outpatient. We do detox there as well, which is one of the more unique things we do there. We, uh, a lot of the detox that normally happens in hospitals, we can do out of the office. People come in in the morning and we get them started and then they get tracked at home then they come back the next day, they do that for three to five days. And that way, if they need detox, but for some reason can't make it, uh, make it work with a hospital-type stay, then we can help them out. What is, just 
go into a little more information on what medication-assisted treatment entails? Sure. Uh, people use the acronym MET, medi- medication-assisted treatment. Um, for us, uh, we are not. That can include, for instance, methadone, but that we are not running a methadone program. So we focus mostly on the um, Suboxone, the generic is buprenorphine, and uh, Vivitrol and some of the meds for alcohol like Camperol. The idea behind medication-assisted treatment is that we've found, or research has found, that uh, some of the tougher addictions can be helped along with support of uh, various medications. So, in fact, it's been a it's been a pretty big help since that's come out. It's, uh, if I understand correctly, and you would know better than me, but the uh, mortality rate of people who have opiate use disorders has gone down since the Suboxone or Subutex, buprenorphine, if you will, has uh, become a little bit more widely used in treatment of the addiction. Is that accurate? Yes. The, the whole concept behind all those medicines is that the mortality rate is so high and there haven't been a lot of things that have put a huge dent in the success rates you know everybody tries you know there are good programs out there but there's just an awful lot of relapse and the risk when you relapse is so high uh, for overdose deaths and then there's all the uh, the other illnesses that can come along with it uh, needle use you know the HIV, the hepatitis. Um, so it was basically there was uh, there have been attempts to do what they call harm reduction treatment, mm-hmm. which means okay, we're not going to necessarily cure this today, but we're going to look into helping you to at least not die of an overdose anytime soon, and, and in the meantime, you can function, you can keep your job, your family, and you can. Um, stay away from scary illegal things and risky needles and overdoses. It's a little more financially feasible as well, correct? Yes, <laughs> yes. Of course, people do get concerned about the cost of treatment. Of course, outpatient treatment is is a little bit less than some of the other forms like a hospital, but but usually when they think back on the expense of their habit, uh, they realize that they can't afford to not <laughs> find some sort of help. Yeah, and I, you know, by that I just meant the cost of, you know, buprenorphine versus uh, the opiates themselves. I mean, I'm, I'm a firm believer that the medication itself is not enough to, to get the people the help they need. They need treatment on top of the actual product itself. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I think uh, if I'm prescribing Suboxone, for instance, um, I'm not comfortable with just doing that. Uh, For one thing, you know, you shouldn't, it's not a great idea to just stay on a medicine like that forever. What are the average taper because uh, that, that seems to be the common. You, you go on to a Suboxone Subdutex, you taper down. What's the average uh, time it takes to taper down that you found with across your patients? 
Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, one question is how long to be on it. And, of course, some people, you just use the Subutex to just do a detox. Um, because for one reason or another, you've decided you know, not to stay on it in a maintenance fashion. And then there are those who stay on it for a while. Uh, and that's patient to patient. That's person to person kind of thing. It is true that you can't just... It's not a good idea to just stop at cold turkey because it, even though it has a fairly low addiction rate, I mean, it, there are probably some people who, who it kind of grabs. It's pretty unusual compared to other opiates and, say, methadone. But um, you do want to, you know, when you do come off of it, you do want to do a taper. Well, there's there's a couple of answers to that. One is if you do it in a inpatient treatment center they tend to do it pretty quickly because you know, you're limited how many days you can be there if you're in an, uh, an outpatient setting we usually we do a pretty slow taper probably three weeks actually you go down if someone's on say 16 milligrams and go down and get it down to say four milligrams in a week or so and then we really slow it down and we go to very small doses we actually have a, a pharmacy that helps us uh, a compounding pharmacy that helps us make really small doses like 0.5 milligram pills and such and so we can do it pretty slowly it's got to really help with that taper program to have that ability to go so small until the until you're done now you mentioned methadone and that seems to have fallen out of favor can you talk more why it seems like methadone has that abuse potential and that's why you don't see methadone used uh, as a optional drug to get off heroin it seems like we've gone to to better drugs yeah i think most of us i mean we have this conversation amongst uh, the people in the field most of us and 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 the research still shows that it has its place but it's getting to be a somewhat smaller uh, group of patients that that fits into. Um, it was the best harm reduction medication for a long time, but with Suboxone available now, it's, it does some of the same things, but with less, a lot less risk. So it's kind of replacing it for most people. There are still some people who, even with Suboxone type treatment and therapy, uh, they just keep relapsing. So the methadone still is a safer narcotic than all of the stuff that's more abusable out there. Also, it's it's a pretty involved thing to be in, in a methadone clinic. You know, you're showing up every day. It's usually early in the morning. And it's not a medicine without other medical risks besides addiction. So I think it's still a reasonable place to refer some people, but it's not it's not near as common as it used to be. So when somebody is on a, a suboxone taper, it's my understanding that with Vivitrol, they have to have 14 days free of the opiates themselves before they can start a Vivitrol program. Is that the same with suboxone? I mean, it is truly an opiate. So is there that window where once they're done with the suboxone, they need to wait 14 days before the Vivitrol can be administered? Yes, uh, Vivitrol basically blocks the receptor completely, so if there's any other form of a narcotic in the system, then it can kick the person into some some uncomfortable withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so 
14 days is the outside. If they're on Suboxone and it's been tapered, then you don't have to wait two weeks after they've been completely off of it, especially if it's been a slow taper. Yeah. Yeah, maybe a week. So really somebody comes into a 30-day program and ultimately the the best thing to do would get them tapered out in two weeks so that they could get that Vivitrol shot prior to leaving after a 30-day stint in residential? Yeah, if the goal is to get them a Vivitrol shot before they leave, then it's good to be off the Suboxone at least at least a week Okay, uh, before they get the shot. Another option for some people is to give them a few days. If you're not sure that the opiates all the way gone you can give the oral version of the vivitrol shot which is just naltrexone pills and you can give that a try and if if you oops you know if you if you realize that you did it too soon you can at least stop it and it's not already sitting in your system for a month yeah you don't have to curl up in the corner for a week and ride it out exactly (laughs) yeah so sometimes i just give the if i'm not sure i'll give the pill for two or three days and make sure they're tolerating it and then go for the shot so how many patients that, that come across through your practice um, go on a Suboxone taper that were um, not heroin, but just other forms of opiates? I mean, to me, my experience has been it's mostly heroin, people with, who've struggled with heroin versus prescription opiates. Yeah, you know, there are... You know, I should know the statistic, but there are an awful lot of pill abusers in our region. Um, I think people do get to the point where they might uh, switch from from pills to heroin, access, uh, affordability, things like that. So they may start with a pain pill addiction, but then it eventually moves over to heroin. So I think you're right. I think... We tend to see more heroin than pills, but I think that's not because there's more more people on one than the other. I think it's just that they're getting sicker, and they're getting more consequences, and it's getting scarier, and so that's when they show up to treatment. Now, I think it's interesting to note that, Chris, in the last six months or so, you've been working as a MAT program assistant Mm -hmm. for Turning Point, but you yourself when you went through detox and at the beginning of your residential treatment did have some medication assisted treatment, what was your experience? Um, and I, I didn't, I had never even heard of Suboxone until I got to treatment. So what, you know, my experience was in detox was, um, the Ativan for alcohol withdrawals, uh, hydroxyzine was for anxiety and, uh, gabapentin and, I'm still not quite sure what that was for, but whatever it was they were giving me in detox, uh, if there's one good thing I can say about Highland Ridge, they kept me comfortable. I did not experience any withdrawals at all. So once I moved to residential, I stayed on the gabapentin and hydroxyzine. And even as I learned more about gabapentin in residential, I, I wanted off of that because they were getting ready to reschedule it and it just sounded like it was something else I may possibly leave the treatment center with with an addiction to and the hydroxyzine after about two weeks in residential it just started leaving me tired I mean I would want to fall asleep so that was about the extent of my you know 
my experience with medication-assisted treatment, although I guess, I mean, that would qualify, would it not, as medication-assisted treatment? Officially speaking, if you look at the, like the SAMHSA government website, when they say MAT, they're talking about the meds we've been talking about. But uh, certainly there are other medicines that can help with a detox or with the anxiety that's connected with it. Uh, so formally, that's not MAT, that, okay. but, but it might come along with it. You know, you're talking about a real significant dilemma that comes up, and that is, okay, I have an addiction to drugs or pills, and now I'm going into treatment, and now you're suggesting I take three or four other drugs or pills to treat my drug or pill addiction. Yeah. Thank you very much. I don't, I'm not really excited about that. Um, so that's, a, that's definitely something that, that has to be worked through with people. You know, and I see, I mean, my office is a special, specialized office for medication-assisted treatment, so by the time people get to that level of care, you know, that might be what they need. It might not be what they need. But, um, you know, it's kind of like I'm a, a spinal doctor, and I don't even see people until they've had three years of medications and physical therapy. So I see a kind of a the sicker end of the population as far as how far down the road they are. I mean, there's a lot that can happen before medications. I mean, preventive things, you know, earlier in the course of, of the problem, you know, therapy, 12-step work, various supports. So not everybody who has an opioid addiction needs to be on Suboxone. It's just that yeah. by the time they get to my office, a good chunk of them do. Yeah. Yeah. They've already been through two or three residential programs or they've had three and in, two intensive care unit stays from opioid overdoses. And then it's like, I don't care what you give me. Just keep me alive, please. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's part of what I do as a psychiatrist is, okay, well, this person's anxious, but he's, why anxious? Well, anxious mainly because he's in a treatment program and he's nervous uh, or he's in withdrawal or there's someone else who has been anxious all their life. They have a nasty social phobia. They have agoraphobia. They never get out of the house. And this was 10 years before the addiction hit. In that case, well, you better find a way to treat the social phobia because that's probably been a big trigger to their addiction use. So maybe in that person you do end up using something like hydroxyzine long-term or even consider things like gabapentin pros and cons but you can't not treat the mental health stuff because that's part of the relapse risk mm -hmm. yeah i found that myself with the program i went through at turning point was uh, you know let's not you know treat the symptom let's treat the issue let's find out why it is that you run to that drug or that alcohol or in my case both and uh you know that is big for me being uneducated as far as i you know i don't have any degrees i didn't go to school what i've learned i've learned in treatment in recovery and and just trying to understand what it is that that you're running from and learning to deal with that is uh it's been a big piece of my recovery yeah through mindfulness especially has been I'll preach mindfulness all day don't get me started this is a different episode <laughs> which is funny because you are the least likely guy 
from the outset to like mindfulness. And I have to say, while you don't have any formal paper degrees, you do have a degree in street smarts, yeah. I would say. Word. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's, for me, that's the beauty of working in this field is because I get to see people who are so sick and confused and sort of spiritually empty make those changes so to see somebody go through a program and learn about themselves and learn about their value and to learn why they did it and undo some of those traumas and some of those patterns that's the beauty of recovery and i think that's that gets back to the medicine question because i think there are a lot of people who worry that if you treat if you start treating an addiction with medications that the person might not find those other those other core issues they may just stop working on them because maybe they're not hurting as much now because they're on it's blunted by a medication i think that's a, a very appropriate question to ask and and i definitely was one of them when you know when my involvement with with mat through turning point came up you know it was kind of for me an opportunity just to learn a little bit more but i I was definitely against medication-assisted treatment at that point. Um, I was encouraged um, by my supervisor at the time to look into that and understand what it really was, and I've since softened on it. Um, you know, if somebody's tapering, uh, you know, I'm all about it. I, I cringe still a little bit at a maintenance program, but maintenance program doesn't necessarily mean lifelong program either. But it that is was my hesitancy to embrace it fully was you know you are still masking whatever that is you're not dealing with it you're you're still feeding something there to kind of block that pain so that you can't feel it and as i looked into it you know and i'm still an infant as far as understanding it goes but i've softened a little bit on the stance of medication assistant treatment is just a way for people to continue to use legally yeah, it's it's interesting because those of us who either have addictions or worked in the field, we do tend to get a little all or nothing about what works. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as a as a group, we tend to be all or nothing kind of people in recovery. Everything was twelve step, all or nothing. You either do it or you're gonna die, and then you know. Um, you get the same thing with, with some of the treatment modalities now. I tend to just try to fall back on what research shows works because there's so much lore out there about everything. So I just try to fall back on, okay, what's the research showing? And, I, you know, I think uh, things like Suboxone, there is a place. But like I said, not everybody who walks in my door with an opiate use disorder it doesn't make sense for everybody to be on Suboxone. Maybe they're kind of early and they haven't tried anything else. They haven't tried treatment. They haven't tried a residential program. So, you know, let them give it a try. Yeah, and I know that being a former opiate addict myself, just the fear of not having that, if if that can soften somebody enough to get them into treatment to know they're not going to be cut off from the drug immediately that they'll at least have something as they work through their 
I won't swear right there. As they work through their stuff, stuff. <laughs> you know, that, it, that they can then, uh, you know, learn that it will be okay without it, even though it hurts for a little while. Yeah, I think you're speaking also to what we understand is the main reason people don't go into treatment for opioid disorders, and that is they are afraid to withdraw. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have a kind way to, <laughs> to help manage that, mm-hmm. yeah. And it is painful to withdraw. I mean, Chris, you've had your own experiences with that. Mm-hmm. How would you sum that up? It it hurts. Um, I, you know, I mean, you may have heard it hundreds of times, but it feels like a really bad case of the flu. And you're just really, you're hurting, you're sweating, your whole body aches. And, you know, all you can think about is where can I get some more? I need some more. I've got to get somewhere to get this. But, you know, through the pain creates the confusion and then the anxiety rises and you just can't think straight. And I really think in withdrawal is where you become the most desperate and, you know, you're most likely to engage in risky behaviors that you even in active use while you have the drug would never even consider doing. That's, you know, withdrawal is the most dangerous place for an addict to be, in my opinion. Yeah, I was just thinking... uh, you guys like to refer to rock songs, right? I wonder yeah, if you've heard true. the uh, John Lennon's "Cold Turkey." I have heard that. Yes, it's it's a it's a lovely portrait of what it must feel like. I have not had to go through that myself, but yeah, it's it hurts. The meth was just as bad, and there is no medication-assisted treatment for meth withdrawal. You just ride it out. But yeah. although. There may be some stuff coming out for meth and and other and coke and other things here in the next couple of years. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Is it in yeah. trial phase now? Or right? Okay. Yeah, a few things. That's yeah, funny. and there are actually other things you can do to help people with stimulants, but uh, nothing on label just yet. So. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I did not know that was even coming. So Now, are yep. you bummed that you waited? Just kidding. <laughs> I'm glad you got clean when you did. Well, I can always go back. <laughs> no, we're good. You can go back, but uh, you get to ride that. You I want to try that. <laughs> you you got to do that road alone. <laughs> be a guinea pig. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm pretty comfortable where I'm at. I'll just, uh, we'll just ride this, but good to know for future reference. <laughs> so, Chris, you mentioned you're concerned about people being on a maintenance program Dr. Hansen, why would somebody be on a maintenance program in an MAT program? Yeah, so that's the harm reduction model. And basically, in a nutshell, if you feel like somebody's at reasonably high risk for doing more significant damage to themselves while they're trying to get clean, then you start thinking about Suboxone type medications. And the duration, I usually say minimum six months outside a couple of years. And it really depends on what kind of progress they're making during that time period. So the idea is this is going to help keep you alive, keep you from getting hepatitis B, keep you from going to prison, keep you from overdosing 
keep you from, uh, you know, at least, you know, you've got this certain level of functioning. You may not, you know, you may not be, it's, it's not ideal. You're dependent, in a sense, mm-hmm. on a medication until you've got treatment, you've got therapy, you've got your feet underneath you, you've got some skills, maybe you've got a job, maybe the legal system's out from under you. Um, and then you look at coming off. Or, and uh, maybe at some point in there, switching from a Suboxone maybe to a Vivitrol, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, the, the experience I've had with people that were on maintenance programs, and these are just people I've known in recovery. This isn't related to the, the program I'm, you know, involved in, but it makes me skeptical because inevitably I see these people it's not enough you know that suboxone's not enough they want to be high you know so they go back to whatever it was or they turn to prescription painkillers or something of that nature so for somebody like me who's still skeptical of a long-term maintenance program i mean what what can we say to people like that out there that might soften their stance on it a little bit yeah well, I mean, one thing is, hopefully, some you know, hopefully people can go see somebody and get an assessment, mm-hmm. so that they're not the only person trying to figure their out, figure out their own recovery. Mm-hmm. I mean, go to a th- counselor, go to a treatment center, an office, and get it triaged because we can all sit there and think we know what's best for ourselves, but that's part of how we got where we are. Yeah. Right? So I just try to encourage people, I, you know, it's that whole higher power thing. Just as long as you're not your own higher power, <laughs> trust in, in somebody to help you make some, you know, get some advice. So I would say the other thing is, if, if, if I'm talking to John, opiate addict, John, okay, um, how many times have you come close to death? with your behavior if it's been once maybe maybe you know maybe you can try these other methods and that's maybe that'll work out okay how many more times do you want to put yourself in that position while you're trying to figure out what works yeah um so that's that's one thing the other thing is in a program like ours at least and there are other programs like this too um we, have, we try to help people understand that the medication, like a Suboxone, it, the, it only does one thing. It blocks, well, two things. It blocks cravings, and if you try to use, it blocks the effect mm. to some degree. It doesn't fix your marriage. <laughs> it doesn't undo your trauma. It doesn't treat your depression. It doesn't undo the fact that when you go bowling with your buddies, that's when you're used to using um, all those habitual things. It doesn't do anything for any of that. So, so if we get people, for instance, in our program that are craving on top of the, or they're they're relapsing on top of the suboxone and stuff. Okay, well maybe the suboxone is. I get this every day. They've relapsed. 
we talk through it and we know that day to day dose wise they're fine on the dose they're on but it's when they get in an argument with their partner it's when something else comes up that they so in other words we try to help people understand the medicines aren't magic bullet they it's not treatment in a sense it's not the treatment happens well the medicine helps you stay alive while you hopefully go get treatment it sounds like it's fair to say a mat program is one tool in your tool belt for recovery just depending on why you got addicted to 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 begin with yeah uh has to do with it's it's some of these meds some of these opiates and heroin they're so strong that i mean people people get you know you go to the dentist and you get a pain pill and off you go you know and that's that's all she wrote for the next 10 years you know so it's the understanding that the the medicine is just to help with some of those physical things um and then you 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 know to get success you work on the other stuff so it's it's not for everybody yeah and back to get getting an assessment i mean you can you can go get an assessment a clinical assessment pretty much you know anywhere i mean i know that turning point does those without any obligation at all and you know I don't know what the cost of those is, though. I mean, is that just a regular doctor visit? Or, I mean, that I got to believe an assessment would be easy to come by for somebody that's maybe in the early stages of thinking that they need treatment. Yeah, that's a good question. There are a lot of different places that do assessments. Um, let's see. Uh, one way, I mean, there are some hotlines, for instance, for addiction. Uh, there's a... Um, a Utah crisis line there's a Salt Lake County crisis line and you can talk to somebody for a minute and they can help you sort through where you're at some people start with a therapist hmm. and they talk through what's going on and then between them and the therapist they decide whether they need maybe they need more maybe they need to go to a hospital and get a detox maybe they need a residential program maybe they need an outpatient MAT program maybe they just need more therapy yeah. Uh, other places that end up doing assessments are emergency rooms. If somebody shows up sick related to their addiction, then there are crisis workers at all the ERs, uh, and they can help troubleshoot that. Yeah, yeah I think in an emergency room case, uh, you might not get full disclosure. I'll say that somebody's in there and maybe, uh, you know, they're just there because of the event that happened that that there's not you know they're not ready to take that next step of being clean yet and so you know i don't know how honest that is but then that's not to say that people in that state of mind aren't enjoying being addicted i think that that is a that's a rotten place to be and i don't know of anybody who's who addiction has a full grasp on that that really deep down doesn't want out of that i think everybody does but when you're getting an assessment you know you you've got to be fully honest or you're not going to get you know you're going to get out of that assessment what you're willing to put into it would you say that's accurate yes i would say that's true Uh, i think though 
people can end up getting pretty good long-lasting treatment no matter how they first got there. For instance, it used to be thought that if you were court-ordered a treatment, you wouldn't do as well. And that's been found to not be true. Um, in fact, those people tend to do a little bit better because they're, they know they've got a parole officer to answer to. And, mm-hmm. and they kind of have a more structured, uh, more structured recovery, more incentive, even if it's not real pleasant incentive. Mm-hmm. But they, they tend to do okay. So, it, yeah, how people end up in treatment probably has less to do with how well they do than sort of are they what's their level of motivation Um, maybe you guys have talked about this on the show but another interesting topic is how to get people to the point of being motivated it used to be well that person's not ready they have to hit rock bottom Mm -hmm. but now that the current understanding is well we can help people to get to that point and that's where like motivational interviewing comes in it's like you don't have to hit rock bottom but we can help you get to the point where the the drive to get better is stronger than the drive to use we can Mm -hmm. help get you to that point we don't have to just put you out on the streets until you get to that point on your own and we had not covered that before that's that's very interesting and I, i think just along with other research what are some things that maybe debunk some of this all-or-nothing thinking that you found in the latest research for addiction treatment? Yes. Well, okay, so there's uh, there's a couple of good websites. For instance, there's uh, the uh, American Society of Addiction Medicine that does a lot of research. There's, of course, SAMHSA.gov, S-A-M-H-S-A.gov. Uh, in centers of disease control. Um, so these are places you can go to get hard data, not, you know, not recovery-promoting rumors. I think what's difficult is that otherwise an awful lot of the information you get can tend to be self-serving for whoever you're asking. That's what's sometimes hard about getting treatment is because if you ask, you know, there are a lot of websites that really look like they're neutral website, websites, but they're directing you to a certain treatment program. So I would just encourage people to go to some of those other websites. There's, there's WebMD has some fairly, fairly neutral stuff on there. I mean, I, I, I can't quote the specific research, but in terms of, like, for instance, 12-step work, uh, the research has shown that, that it can be a pretty decent adjunct for people, it can be something that can be added to treatment. Uh, it it shouldn't be seen as a primary treatment, and it shouldn't be seen as a treatment that everybody should have as an adjunct. It's seen at, nowadays as a tool for some people that works very well. Let's see. There's uh, gosh, even this is a strange one, but therapy alone. There have been most research these days show that for somebody at least with a nasty opioid addiction with relapses, therapy alone may not do much. These are the MAT people. Mm-hmm. These are people who the only thing that's been shown to help is MAT. <laughs> at least as far as like if they look into like two years of 
two years of uh, lack of relapse. We all know that, practically speaking, you don't try to do MAT without therapy. You just don't do it. Because the goal, the goal isn't to just keep somebody alive, right? Mm. The goal is to improve quality of life. So I think, I think as far as all or nothing, I, you know, when we find something that absolutely cures these things, you know, maybe 10 years, 20 years from now, we'll have, you know, genetic modifications for some of this. Okay, well, that might be a good thing to be black or white about. <laughs> And if we find a gene and we can fix it, then black or white, let's do it. Uh, but until we get to something like that, we're, you know, anything that we talk all or nothing about is probably not. Mm. Uh, if you hear a, a professional or a recovering addict say, this is what worked for me, so this is what I think should work for everybody. Well, <laughs> well, you know, not going to happen. Recovery is definitely not a one-size-fits-all type of solution. I have to ask Chris, so you were black and white on Matt to a point. Has your opinion changed? Drastically, yeah. In, in talking with uh, the doctor that runs our program, and I, I don't have his permission to drop his name, so I'll leave it out, but... Um, you know he's been good about it uh you know i've done a little bit of the research on it and and realized yes it is you know if if it keeps somebody from overdosing behind a dumpster you know who cares how long they're on it i mean that's that's not for me to determine what they need if it if they can get something to keep them out of that environment as much as possible um you know i'm, I'm all for it i would never want to I would not I'm grateful to who to be where I'm at in my recovery and fortunately for me once I entered detox everything fell right into place for my treatment and not only did I get the help I needed but I found a lot of good tools to assist me along the way and and uh, you're right there is definitely it, it might not work for someone but it works for someone else uh, again the mindfulness piece for me I see I watched a lot of my fellow housemates keep that at arm's length. They wanted nothing to do with that piece, and I couldn't understand that because of what it was doing for me. But you get those little adders that that people can pick up along the way that help them. You know, they're learning how addiction works. They're learning to deal with, with past trauma. They're, you know, getting everything you know that they need at the time but eventually treatment ends and you know you need to have an arsenal of different options to to be able to utilize as you work your way deeper into recovery so you know that's uh, the mat you know medication assisted treatment is definitely uh, i now feel has its place and uh it's you know i'm still learning a lot about it um so I've softened. Did that answer your question? It did. Five minutes answer. <laughs> well, and thank you for describing that. It's, it's hard. I, you know, one thing that we get to see on a pretty much a daily basis in our office, and maybe you see this where you're working, you know, people come in, even though ours is just outpatient-based, you know, you know, you'll, somebody will come in, they've, 
you know, they've got court hanging over them. They've got hepatitis C. Uh, they're on the verge of divorce. Um, they look pretty scraggly, and they're pretty uncomfortable and uh, afraid to be there, a lot of anxiety. Spouse comes in and says, fix this guy or I'm out of here. Right. <clears throat> that sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and understandably so. Um, and then a couple of months later, you know, he's got his job. The court stuff is just pending treatment, you know. Um, they're cleaned up. They're, the spouse comes in with them and is taking part in the therapy. And they've got a job and they haven't lost it yet. Uh, so uh, that's pretty common. Now, there's still a lot of work to do. They're just not running and gunning anymore. Yeah. Uh, and it's nice to see that. They start bringing the kids in to, to the, you know, hang out in the waiting room or play with the toys. And it's, it's, it's a nice, nice thing to see for sure. Yeah. It's great to see that success. And, I, and I'm wondering if you could go back to the beginning of you going to med school and deciding that you were going to specialize in psychiatry as well as internal medicine. What was that journey? Yeah, well, when I started med school, I wasn't thinking of really mental health at all. I wasn't, wasn't anywhere on my radar. Um, did a rotation during med school in psychiatry, and we were taking care of a, a woman with uh, a, a lot of bone fractures. We were on the surgical unit of the hospital and uh, she had multiple casts and she was in traction. She was, I think, 19. But they asked the psychiatry's team to come and look at her and I was on the psychiatry team. And it turned out the reason she had all those casts was because she had jumped off a bridge. So that's for me, was a kind of a standout example of, boy, we can do a lot with the medicine, but we can't keep people from jumping off a bridge unless somebody's working on the core stuff. Um, so the way I kind of decided to think about it is all of medicine works with the body. I get to work with the soul. Hmm. So it's not just about lengthening life. It's about improving quality of life. Uh, so I just spoke to me. I still like the medicine part of things, so I actually did a ended up doing a, a internal med the medicine psychiatry residency did both of them haven't practiced internal medicine per se but it comes in handy for like detoxes and other medical things that come up for sure so yeah. what drew you to opening up your own residential recovery program as well as also going in and, and starting a detox yeah so uh, i was practicing psychiatrist and I basically got into some addiction issues of my own and uh, really messed things up. There was depression mixed in with this. It was in the middle of med school, and I didn't know what to do with it. Uh, finally, somebody pointed out that this looked like an addiction. So long story short, I went through residential program this is about 20 years ago. Um, two months of residential, a year of 
uh, outpatient, intensive outpatient, including family work, some 12-step work, and I just, uh, I was one of many who caught the bug of, wouldn't it be fun to be part of this? <laughs> uh, wouldn't it be fun to be part of seeing people make these changes? I was a little worried about jumping into it too soon because I wanted to make sure I was healthy and stuff, and there were things to recover from, including financial things and such. So it was about six years after my treatment that, uh, that I started this residential program. I think that's so great because there is so much power in one's own recovery and then leveraging it into helping others with their recovery journey. And I imagine your experiences really lended itself to even increasing your care base and knowledge base and helping other people. Uh, yeah, it does. I mean, for everybody, I think, you know, most treatment programs have at least some people in recovery that work there and it just adds to the trust level, I think, with the clients. I've always said, I don't know that I would want everybody I work with to be in recovery because we're all a bit crazy. Um, <laughs> we need a little, we need a, you know, we have blind spots. We need, uh, you know, what they call normies yeah. in the mix, you know. Yeah, it's it's been um, I, it's a lot of that's unconscious for me. I'm sure I don't know what comes from book learning and what comes from from my own experience. I think certainly the empathy. I think when I I don't have any inclination to do sort of punitive treatment, and I think that's probably partly from my own recovery. I don't if somebody's in my treatment program and they relapse. That's, there's nothing in me or the people I work with, thank goodness, uh, that is inclined towards shame on you. Mm. You know, it's all about, oh, okay. Thanks for telling us. Thanks for coming back in. I'm glad you didn't just not come back. Mm. You know, let's talk about this. So, yeah, and plus, I some of the favorite my favorite people to hang around with are people in recovery because they just. If they're in healthy recovery and they've done good personal work, I think they have more depth than your average person on the street. Uh, that's not, you know, not across the board, but um, just a very sincere people, very real uh, people, and it's fun to hang out with people like that. I agree with that. Definitely, the, the depth of gratitude and, and that radiates out out of them in in this color of light. <laughs> yep. So, yep. Um, I did have a question about so you when you were in medical school and this is stepping back a little bit, but um, how much education is given in in medical school about addiction? Do they cover that much at all? I mean, I'm sure when you move to the psychiatry side of it, they probably you got bigger doses of that but share that with me yes well when i went through not much uh, if i remember most of what was discussed about addictions was basically you know medical complications or what does withdrawal look like when, if you're working in the er and somebody comes in and withdrawal and you're treating that so it was very much based on sort of crisis treatment uh, medical crisis treatment there's, and, and yeah, in psychiatry more, but even so, not a lot. 
it's but it's i mean it's getting more attention now i mean it wasn't gosh it was just a couple of years ago that they added uh, an actual addiction specialty uh, a residency or fellowship that you can actually go to you know kind of like a cardiology specialty mm -hmm. for internal medicine so there's now a you can do a, a, you know you can spend a year or two at a at a training hospital and specialize in it yeah. that's that's fairly new that's very new yeah and that's kind of what what i was getting at is that it's because that answered the question thank you I, I just didn't know if it was just something that was kind of rushed over do they educate you on the addictive nature of the opiates you could potentially be prescribing but i mean I know today it is definitely a little at more at the forefront than it used to just be a sweep it under the, the rug and don't talk about it type. Yeah, it's getting a little better. And then as far as opioid prescribing, it's now everybody who wants, for instance, in Utah, if you want to renew, every year you have to renew your practicing license. And they require um, like four hours worth of training. I think it's every two years in Utah uh, as part of getting your license renewed. And that has everything to do with appropriate opioid prescribing. Mm. Well, and, it, and it seems like there was a history before where you're treating pain as, and, and I forget the term, but pain was one of the things that you were supposed to treat. And I think for those, at least as I understand it, that went through med school in the 90s, it was treat the pain, treat the pain. And we didn't understand the detrimental effects of a lot of the opiates for certain populations and how it would lead to addiction. And I feel like as time has gone by, now we look at pain differently and we look at the use of opiates in a prescribed manner a lot differently than we did 30, 20, even 10 years ago. Yeah, a couple of specific things. One, we learned that... Um that a lot of people get into a what they call hyperalgesia state uh, with chronic opiate prescriptions. Basically, using opiates daily for a long period can uh, start causing it can start causing pain. There are actually some opioid receptors that are are actually promoting pain mm -hmm. that they get activated uh, at some point with chronic use. So they end up you're in a, you're chasing your tail, right? You're a, you're on the opiate and now it's making it worse physically. So that's been one finding. Um, you know, there's still a lot of education because it's there's physicians are taught to I mean, you know the there's the do no harm piece, right? But most of us are taught to help. So I mean, what percentage of people, I, don't, I should know this too, but probably I'm, you know, about a third of people that go to a doctor or go to an ER, they're not going because of whatever's, whatever the problem is. They're going because it hurts. <laughs> There's pain. So we as physicians want to help why they came in. Mm. So we still have an inclination to want to satisfy the customer. Um, so it's an uphill battle sometimes because even if we know that they that there's something we need to do that doesn't involve an opiate prescription there's a lot of pressure to relieve the pain and there are no better 
painkillers than opiates, at least in the short run. So it's interesting. They're still, even with current knowledge, they're an awful lot. Of, I, I get this, and it's odd. And this is for all of those who are out there in recovery from opioids. Um, don't necessarily trust your prescribers to not overprescribe, even if you tell them that you're in recovery. Um, you have to be your own best advocate. Not uncommonly, you know, you go to a doctor or a dentist and you get a procedure done and you, you may not, you know, and you're in recovery and you may not really need Percocet. And you have told your doc, like a good reco- person in recovery, when you first come in that one of your medical problems is that you've had an opioid addiction. And it's on your list and it's on their chart. Doesn't necessarily keep them from prescribing, you know, 24 pills with three refills. Yeah. Uh, so you have to, you know, you, someone who, who I like to educate people about that because they can, they can just say, you know what, I don't really need all these. Can you, I don't, in fact, I don't need any of them or I, I need five, no refills, yeah. depending on the situation. Yeah, I'd rather walk out of there with none and then I can contact you if I feel like I need it versus well, I'll take them just in case because... And then I got a little bit of internal chatter that could develop if I've got it just sitting there at the ready. That would be for me anyway. I would, I would be leery of even having it around. Yeah, I, th- you know that if 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 you're facing something like that, sometimes it's good to run that by a therapist, a sponsor, somebody. Just have a plan for when mm-hmm. those things come up. Because every I, I hesitate to recommend one thing or the other because everybody in every procedure is different. I mean, some procedures really, you know, it's just really nasty and you, you shouldn't go without something. But others, maybe not so much. But yeah, people are uh, prescribers are getting more information about it, and uh, they're tracking it. You know pharmacies in the state they're tracking things a lot more closely as well so i am interested in your experience in opening up a detox where you had the residential detox and compare that to now your outpatient i guess or office detox and how do you hold accountability when they're coming into you during the day and they have all that opportunity when they're not there yeah well, the detox, the in, the hospital detox that uh, I opened, uh, that kind of came about just because some of us were down there doing treatment, residentials and such, and there people were there was there wasn't any available detox anywhere near. I mean, there was Vegas, and then there was Utah County. That was those were the closest, and an awful lot of people were getting their detox in jail or. They ended up in the medical hospital, and the medical hospital, you know, they're not, they did what they could, but that wasn't their, you know, they weren't equipped. So basically, there was a need, um, and so we we put it together. It's nice to be part of filling a need down there. As far as outpatient detox, officially they call it ambulatory detox, office-based detox, I think the main drive for that is uh, this huge problem of access to care. We know that there's still, for every 10 people with an addiction, there's only one getting treatment. We can talk about Suboxone, we can talk about residential programs, we can talk all about it. We're only catching one in 10 people with any of that. We start looking at, uh, one of the gentlemen I work with uh, has 
been involved, say, on the government policy end of things for a long time with legislation and trying to direct things uh, to get better access to care. One of the obstacles to care is you know, it's a big deal to commit to go to detox. Uh, hospitals are scary for a lot of people. Hospitals don't cover opioid detox as well as they used to uh, because it's, there's not much life-threatening about it unless you get super dehydrated. So, especially for your opioids, if somebody needs detox, it's getting harder to find a place to go. Or you get somebody who is afraid they'll lose their job if they disappear for a week to go to a hospital. It's, it's a hole. It's been a hole uh, in, in treatment. People sometimes just won't go to treatment if they can't figure out how to get the detox done. <laughs> or they delay it uh, until, you know, more complications happen. So, and there is kind of a general movement towards trying to do as much addiction treatment outside of a hospital as you can. Residential, I love residential programs, but they're expensive for the most part. And insurance companies are kind of tightening the screws with coverage for those as well. So, being prepared to do as much of it as you can as an outpatient is a reasonable niche. Outpatient detox, uh, yeah, we bring it up and people say, "Yeah, but they go home. What's going to happen when they what's going to happen when they go home? You see them for 2-3 hours and then you send them home? What's going to keep them from using? You know, what's going to how is that safe? Um, cuz obviously if you go to a hospital or you're in a residential program, you're getting your detox, you're being watched all day and you can't, you know, it's a lot harder to to bail or to use. Um so, first of all, I would say, well, if they're at high risk for any of that, we don't try to do an office-based detox. If they're coming in, we do alcohol detox, too. And so, if you know, if they've had a history of withdrawal seizures, we don't do it. If they're going home to their, their wife is in the middle of an addiction, too, and she's the only other person home, we, we don't do it. So we're a little bit picky about who might be able to do it. The ways that we try to make it safe, uh, they only get one day's worth of our prescription at a time. So if it's a, if it's a Suboxone taper, for instance, they just get enough to get them through till the next day when they come in. So you can't do a lot of damage that way. Same with like a Librium thing. We try as much as we can to have them have what we call a treatment companion, which would be they become kind of the uh, the hospital tech. Yeah. If you were to you know compare it to a hospital, and they're encouraged to basically stay with them the whole time until they come in the next day and help keep track of symptoms, hang on to the medications, and um, call us if there's a problem. And we have all these instructions about reasons to call us, reasons to call nine one one, reasons to pull out the naloxone. So it's a different animal for sure. The detox part of an outpatient detox is fairly straightforward. It's very similar to an inpatient medically. It's this other stuff. It's how to how to help track things while they're not there. That's the whole whole trick. But having said that, there are a lot of people who can use that kind of service. And, and the, one of the fun things is is to see somebody who is worried about their job and they're not going to do detox. Somebody finds out about what we do, they come in, and they may only miss two days of work 
for an like for an alcohol, we've had people come in. They just you know they're sick for a couple of days and they gain a balance and they're still not feeling great, but they're feeling well enough to go to work. And then they come in for an hour uh, a day for a few days and and they're still in the, and then they can start the rest of their treatment while they're um, while they're getting the detox done. They can start their therapies and get those started. So there's an advantage. So office space detox goes something like this. They come in on a Friday and you're like, Peter, what's happening? (laughs) Oh, gosh. I'm going to have to go ahead and ask you to come in Saturday. (laughs) Oh, I almost forgot. I'm going to have to ask you to come in Sunday, too. If you haven't seen the movie, you don't. You're looking at me like you have no clue what I'm talking. It's probably one of his favorite movies to quote is Office Space, where they ask you to work overtime. But you know, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. Sorry, but it's with you. It's really interesting to hear the differences and how this new innovation in detox care has come to fruition. So, thank you so much for sharing. Are there any other things that you want to share or tidbits or medical tips from your wealth of knowledge? <laughs> oh, got another f- couple hours? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's I don't, hard to let condense me think, it. Let me think. Um, I think a couple of things come up uh, quite often for me anyway. One is I certainly wouldn't do medication treatment without counseling. I think, sure, it will keep you alive, but it won't keep you living. Hmm. The beauty of recovery is the growth. Sure, but who, and who wants to just stay alive? I mean, that's no fun, right? It's a good first step, but that's all it is. Hmm. Another thing is, you know, I think it's really... Uh, pretty key for people in who are looking at recovery and treatments to pay attention to, to the mental health aspects. Now, statistically, about half of people with addictions have major mental health issues, and half of people with major mental health issues have addictions. And then there's a, usually a question of which comes first: does one cause the other, or are they kind of two separate things that just happened in the same person? And there's a mix of all that. The good news is that, that if someone has both, then treating one makes treating the other one easier. I almost am grateful when I learn that somebody's addiction in large part was because of untreated depression. Because, okay, we can sink our teeth into that. We know what to do for that. So uh, I would hope people would get those looked at and sometimes at first it's hard to tease out you know the chicken and the egg stuff and I think at least medically it doesn't really matter that much because uh, you're going to treat both however you think you need to treat it I think it matters more in the counseling um, you know to sort out the origins of, of those different things and how they play into each other so just because it's kind of complex to look into all that I wouldn't not do it sometimes they focus on getting you clean and thinking straight before they try to dig too much into the mental health and the past traumas. Most people with addictions have traumas either from the past or just the traumas related to the addiction behavior. Mm. 
So trauma is almost always part of addiction treatment. So if someone wanted to come and see you at LTM Health, how can they find you? Oh, there's the usual website, ltmhealth.com. And see the phone number, 801-613-9843. And it's like most places, you know, the questions have, the questions that you might get when, you, when, people, when we pick up the phone are, you know, a little bit about what's going on for you. And all that, of course, kept in strict confidence. You know, tell us a little bit about what's going on. And then the people that pick up the phone are just basically trying to get an idea of whether what we do is a good fit or whether they, gosh, you know what, you really need to go to a hospital or you need to call one of these residential programs and maybe we'll see you after that or, you know. And then there's always the lovely question of payment, you know. Um, Mm As far as, you know, it's like any doctor's office. Okay, uh, who's your insurance, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, our, our place, we're pretty well set up to take all, uh, pretty much all the insurances, and medi- including Medicaid. And, and then if, it's a, if it makes sense, then you, don't, you can't, usually can't figure it all out over the phone, right? So if it makes some sense, then you, you, they can come in and, and see somebody for an, for an assessment because it's another... You don't try to guess what someone needs over the phone. You know, you, mm. you get as close as you can, then you come in, and, and then you find out what's really going on. That's it. And, and like I said earlier, you know, I think if you call any of these places that do assessments, I, you don't have to have it all figured out already. It's nice to have some ideas, and it doesn't hurt to do some research. But hopefully, you know, where you land is someone who will say, yeah, we're a good fit, or no, we're not, but here's, here's some phone numbers. Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Hansen. We really appreciate your insight and sharing your stories and how you have been involved in addiction treatment. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for what you do. Yeah. We enjoy it. Recovery has just become part of our bonding now, I guess. Right, right. Yeah, one of those things just puff your chest out and lean against well, yeah, I'm in recovery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing a drywall up there at the new McDonald's. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so here's uh, probably the saving the best for last. But as you know, we end our episodes with a rock song. Yeah. So do you have a rock song in mind? Yeah. I, I don't know if you consider it rock, but... Uh, um, one that reminds me of addiction recovery, at least when I was in it myself. Um, okay, Wilson Phillips. Yes. Right? Hold on. Okay. Yeah. As long as it's not country, we'll allow it as rock. <laughs> you know this song. This is a good song. I know this song. This is of a course song I of do. my youth. I love it. <laughs> so. Not, not bad harmonies. <laughs> exactly. There you go. There's three of us. We can make it happen. <laughs> All right. So, Hold On by Wilson Phillips. Take a listen. I know this pain. pain. Why do you lock yourself up in these? 